Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Congress Two Beers In. Uh, I'm Matt Glassman, Senior Fellow at the Government Affairs Institute, and I'm here with my colleague, Laura Blessing. Hey there. And uh, we also have a special guest today, uh, Michael Thorning, uh, who is a, what's your title, Michael, over at BBC? Is it Scholar? Resident uh, fellow, what are you? No, we we have kind of an interesting setup. So my my title is director of structural democracy. Um, director, so, that's a good title. I like that. Yeah, I, director of a, a project of basically one person, which is me. So, um, uh, but well, Mike, Michael writes all about uh, things going on in Congress in Washington, uh, institutional stuff. He worked on the Hill in the Senate. Uh, for multiple senators, and he's an all-around great thinker about uh, everything going on. So we want to bring him on today and and get his thoughts and do a roundtable. Obviously, the only thing people will talk about right now in Washington, if you start with them, is the debt limit. So I want to start with you on that, Michael. I'm going to sort of give you a framing question, but we can go any direction you want with this. So I have uh, half of my Twitter feed is sort of in absolute hysterics that uh, we are going to default or that Biden should take sort of extraordinary unilateral measures to prevent default. And the other half of my Twitter feed is sort of like where Mitch McConnell is, where he's like, calm down, everybody. We're not going to default. We're just going to cut a deal. This is how Congress works. Where do you feel? Where, where's the needle for you between those two sort of polls right now? Uh, I'd say I am um, unusually probably leaning toward where Leader McConnell is. Uh, I'm, I'm not yet um, in hysterics about it, but I don't think it will take many more days for me to start leaning the other way. Um, although most of the news, it seems like the last couple of days has been that they are inching toward a deal and, you know, they're, they're doing some of the, the final negotiations at least. Uh, but, you know, I, I think the only way at this point, I think it's likely we default um, is if Congress really runs out of time to get this done before June one or, um, you know, uh, BPC, my colleagues and our economic policy project um, released their updated um, X date um, or the day that they expect we would default um, their projection. Um, they moved it from June one. Uh, they had been June one to early August. They've now moved it to June two to early August. So maybe Congress has a one extra day um, in there. But um, you know, frankly, I don't think anyone has the most accurate sense still of what um, the actual date is going to be. And that's the one thing hanging out there that worries me. Um, you know, we're we're looking at about a week for Congress to get this done. They're also coming up on. Um, you know, the Memorial Day recess, uh, and we know members want to be home, they want to be in their districts, marching in parades, um, you know, shaking veterans' hands and all of that. So, um, you know, they really um, are, are looking at a time when members don't want to be here. Uh, there is, I think, among, you know, some, some percentage of members of the House and Senate, um, a sense that, you know, they have more time, June 2nd isn't really going to be it. Uh, but I don't know if they have a good basis for that. But I guess what I'm trying to say is Congress might stumble over the default date by accident um, if they don't get moving pretty quickly. And maybe that's the, yeah, the that, risk. That's the weird thing that differentiates this from sort of shutdown politics, where you have literally a hard decade, you know, a hard deadline where you know the minute that you're going to be over it. And that also sort of changes the brinksmanship a little. Like when the appropriations deadline is coming up, it's sort of like, you can see those gears start to move faster 72 hours before, 96 hours before. And here it's kind of like, uh, when do we get to that point where we actually are in countdown mode to, to the X date? Like, I, I don't know a whole lot about how Treasury works internally, but I assume like they could have flubbed their numbers and be stuck in a situation where they're either taking sort of extra constitutional measures or just throwing up their hands like, oh, look, we defaulted. We can't pay sort of this bill this morning because we, we missed the numbers. It's just sort of flexible in that sense. Yeah, but I mean, this particular year is more uncertain than most. I mean, we've had extended filing deadlines because of problems in California. I mean, they're, they're really, this is not, I mean, to be sure, you you set up an appropriate contrast with appropriations bills. Like, we know exactly when the end of the fiscal year is. Like, you know, that's a that's a certain date. Uh, whereas, you know, Treasury's X date will always be more uncertain than something that we know down to the literal minute a year ahead of time. Uh, well, forever ahead of time. Uh, but it just... It seems like we have a little bit of kind of like a perfect storm without George Clooney in here. Uh, you know, we've got a genuinely uncertain X date. We've got divided government. We've got uh, factions uh, of note in the Republican Party. Uh, we've got 
inexperienced negotiators and honestly like the role of misinformation in here i mean like i that's not a boat i want to be on um am i scaring you a little bit michael uh, you know a little bit i mean look i think you are absolutely right i think the uncertainty um is is really the scary part of this every time but we have added uncertainty this year you know my colleagues at BPC are usually able to give a much more precise projection of the X date. I think this is the first time they have given such a wide range of when they think that could happen. And so I think that's really speaks to the, um, you know, the risk that this situation, um, you know, presents overall, which is that we keep doing these, um, you know, big, uh, brinksmanship negotiations over really what are non-debt limit related issues. Um, you know, we want to negotiate over either discretionary spending, uh, now non-defense, defense, um, you know, should there be caps? How do we reduce the overall debt? And leaving those conversations to this point around the debt limit gets into kind of a danger zone. Whereas if you're having that around, for instance, you know, the annual funding of the government, you know, that things are a little clearer. The uncertainty to me is is just what makes this such a uh, more unpredictable and kind of chaotic situation. Yeah. My 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 core belief is that the Republicans gain sort of a marginal edge in doing it this way because it allows them to talk about aggregate spending cuts. Um, if, you know, if the debt limit didn't exist and we were just having this discretionary spending fight, in the fall, the Republican position would have to be staked out by writing bills in the House. And then you'd have to have specific spending cuts. I don't think they can get those bills passed through the House with those cuts. So they can anchor their position here on an aggregate cut, which is very popular, uh, and then negotiate from there and never write the bills with actually sort of those bigger cuts. So I think marginally sort of the Republicans gain a little bit on that by doing it in the aggregate way. And I think probably defense might gain a little by doing it this way too. Uh, arguing defense for sort of a big blurry number of non-discretionary defense. But I don't actually think doing it this way is nearly worth the cost of sort of the risk of doing it this way, because I don't think it actually changes that much. Like some people are sort of very angry at the Republicans because they're doing it now. And like if we did this in the fall, like the numbers would be totally different. That doesn't make sense to me. I don't think the numbers would be that different in the fall. I think the, the big problem doing it now is you could blunder your way into some big errors here. Um, I don't think we will, but it's certainly not worth that risk to, to end up, you know, slightly further marginally to the right on these spending bills, which is, I think, what happens when you do it this way. And, and I think the other risk, too, is that, um, you know, the, the last time we were in a similar situation um, in 2011, you know, uh, we didn't even default and still there was a downgrade for some of our debt. Um, and, you know, so I think the question is also not about is it worth the risk of defaulting, but I think is a question of whether it's um, you know, worth the the risk to our reputation, um, you know, as, um, you know, someone as a, as a country, you know, our, our financial um, and um, fiscal reputation. Yeah, the other, yeah I, mean, uh, the I other... think the answer to that is, is a hell no, you know, I mean, it's it, the, the, the juice isn't worth a squeeze on this one. I mean, we are we're really just risking a tremendous amount of loss of reputation as well as real financial harm, even if we don't default. Um, I do think that Matt sets up a really a, a good contrast. Um, if I, th I think if things were the other way around, like they were in, say, 2013, with appropriations and the fiscal year going first and then the debt ceiling going later, you would at least have the capacity to learn from the experience of a potential default, which of a potential, excuse me, shutdown. Ooh, very different. Um, <laughs> Which you know, which we did uh, in 2013 for for a couple of weeks, um, and you get to kind of like feel that pain first um, and learn from it and get your act together. Um, and we don't have that now. And I think it's uh, I think this is complicated for a lot of different reasons. But I would put that on the list of my perfect storm horror movie. Um, you know, in addition to to everything else, I do think that the timing is is significant here. The other, the other blurry sort of unknown, which is always funny to me, is that no one is ever quite sure how it's get, long it's going to take to move these bills through the House and Senate once you have a deal. And there's sort of two reasons for that. One is you get this vague, like, you get these vague statements like, well, it'll take at least two days to write the bill. And like, that's probably right. Like, but if push came to shove, can you write a bill faster than that? Yes. Um, and the other one is you never know if you're going to get sort of what I call the ramp fall effect, where 
one senator stands opposed to the other 99 and just demands sort of regular order uh, on procedural motions that, that cost you hours at the end. You know, remember Paul did this in the sort of fake shutdown or fake lapse of appropriations that lasted several hours. And I guess that would have been, what was that, 2015 um, and, or 2017? I can't even remember at this point. The, the, the short Rand Paul shutdown at any rate, where by making procedural motions, you know, you can you can run past the deadline. And it's, it wouldn't be great to have a Rand Paul style default or whatever on, on debt. And, you know, Mike Lee is already grumbling about using procedural tools or every he said every procedural tool that he could think of. Newsflash, he's not going to do that. I don't think he knows what every procedural tool in his toolkit is for trying to do stuff like this. Uh, but you do have people who are willing sort of to slow things down for their own sort of political reasons. And so you don't really know how long it's going to take. Say they cut a deal. I actually happen to really like the negotiators who are actually doing this. One of the most positive sign of all this to me has been that the, the White House appointed Ricketti and Shalanda Young. I work with Shalanda at Appropriations. She's nothing if not a dead serious deal cutter. Uh, and then Graves and McHenry, I also um, uh, have a lot of respect for as deal makers, people who want to get the yes. And so that was the best sign I saw in the whole thing is they put the right people in the room, um, whether they can arrange the politics such that it sort of saves McCarthy's hide and meets Biden's needs is a different question. But that's sort of, I think, they've got it set up correctly, I think, to get a deal early next week once all the pressures come to bear. But again, these are pressures that probably shouldn't be coming to bear to begin with. I mean, genuine follow-up question. What have you seen the House negotiators work on? Because I share your assessment of the White House team. What have you seen the uh, what the, the uh, House negotiators work on uh, of, of note? I mean, in t- I've seen I mean, I've Graves talk about, um, you know, what the Democrats are getting out of this is we raise that is that the debt ceiling gets raised, which doesn't seem it seems a little disingenuous. And yeah, I mean, my impression of this guy is the guy who's kind of fought a quixotic fight against the Army Corps of Engineers for a long time. Yeah, I mean, everyone has their bluster in public, but uh, Graves and McHenry are serious people when it comes to these things, right? They are not sort of part of the clown show here. Um, and they're not sort of being stuffed in this for their own political motivations, right? Um, now, maybe not the negotiators you want, um, but among the Republicans, you're, you're much better off with them in the room, I'm telling you. Um, yeah, I, I... I mean, it's, a, it's, it's, it's the difference between, in the Senate, between Ted Cruz and John Cornyn, right? Uh, some people are just show ponies and some people actually want to try and cut deals. They may be cutting very conservative deals. They may be trying to drive a hard bargain, but they're in there to get the yes. Um, they're not in there to blow things up. Um, and so I, I, I think we'll get a deal. I, look, I don't think that Yellen and Biden would ever let us default. I really don't. Um, up to and including whatever, you know, 14th Amendment stuff you want to come up with or whatever sh- shenanigans Treasury come up, can come up with on their own, which I think is more likely. I don't think we'd ever default because I do think the reputational harm from that if alone, it's just so risky for someone who's trying to win re-election in 24. That motivation alone, I think, would keep Biden from sort of doing anything that could do, you know, unnecessary risk. But, you know, obviously some of this comes out of your control. Yeah. Um, so, you know, one thing that uh, or actually two things on um, one sort of this question of how quickly could the actual legislation move through. Um, you know, there's some other things that have to happen that are are very um, typically just sort of matter of course and administrative in function, but like, um, you know, the bill has to go through enrollment. It has to go through, um, you know, actually getting to the president to be signed in my understanding. Now, do I think if we got to the, you know, right at the deadline, you know, what, what is the effect of a default? But, um, I understand from a former staff director at House Ways and Means that treasury who was involved in, in the, these um, discussions in 2011 that, you know, Treasury has to make every day a bunch of payments, I think, at at 4 p.m. or whatever it is. Like, that's the time the Treasury's payments go out, right? So if it is June 1 that we're allegedly running out of money or June 2nd, whichever one it is, you know, it's another thing of like, how much is the Hill paying attention to the actual clock, right? Of like, when when does Treasury have to actually execute some of these payments? Um, and And I don't know how much attention is being paid to that or not, but um, you know, that that is is another part of it. But, you know, on, on the negotiators, um, you know, for Graves, I think he, you know, um, did get himself somewhat of a, a reputation um, as as a um, Republican who um, Democrats can work with and, and is interested in working with Democrats, um, you know, first on the um, uh, climate committee. Um, that um, Democrats set up, I think that was two Congresses ago, um, the special, or sorry, it was a select committee um, on climate. He was the ranking Republican on that. I think he was probably one of the most 
um, vocal Republicans who um, you know is, is pushing the government to act on climate change because his state is, um, you know, I think the estimate is that Louisiana loses about um, a football field of land to water every hour. Um, and so he he has a real interest for his state in, in trying to address that. Now, he has leaned more into sort of um, coastal mitigation and some of the infrastructure um, aspects, because Louisiana is also largely a, a, an oil and fossil fuel um, economy. But I do think he's someone um, who also at um, you know, the um, Transportation Infrastructure Committee developed a, really, a reputation, um, you know, for being willing to to um, work with Democrats and, um, you know, actually, uh, try to find consensus, uh, on issues. And so I, I think the fact maybe is just demonstrated by the fact that he is seen as sort of the, the only person who can really navigate all of the so-called five families of the Republican faction, um, probably just says a lot about him. I think individually that if he's truly able to navigate that as his reputation seems to be, um, then, then probably, you know, he is, he is the right person. Um, and, and he and McHenry, I think are both really, um, have a reputation for being serious policy minded people and, and not really messaging minded people. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think I share your assessment, both of your assessment of McHenry, but, you know, Graves, uh, uh, not a lot of experience, you know, uh, most of the experience is not fiscal policy related. And uh, I think I just see the guy a little bit differently. But um, I wanted to talk to you about potential reforms, especially since uh, the bipartisan uh, policy committee um, or a BPC uh, has a debt ceiling uh, suggestion uh, that's out there. Um, and I think this is interesting, particularly in a context uh, where uh, I think that there are kind of like unreasonable things that are being floated and you guys have inserted, uh, I think, a very positive uh, part of the conversation in doing essentially a modified McConnell rule. Um, you know, I do worry that, you know, I, I don't think that Treasury has an automatic kind of safety net for us and like the 14th Amendment stuff genuinely kind of kind of worries me. Um uh, especially that since you have kind of large, large chunks of Democrats in Congress are, are you know, signing on to letters, uh, giving it a big thumb, thumbs up. So now I'm now I'm criticizing both sides. Um, uh, but but Michael, could you tell us a little bit about uh, BPC's um, modified McConnell rule? What the hell a modified McConnell rule even is and how how you think about uh, being a, a, you know, a, a productive suggester of reforms on this on this issue. Yeah, certainly. So I, I have to give all of the credit on this again to my my colleagues in our economic policy program, um, who really are kind of the debt limit um experts. And um, you know, they they developed um a lot of this, but I, I think we have a lot of shared institutional values that are are really reflected in it, the the framework that we've put out. And I, I think that the biggest one of those um is first um, you know, this process is meant to incentivize and encourage Congress itself to adopt a budget and adopt appropriations bills, um, which, you know, has been, um, I, I think, one of the um, contributing factors, although maybe not, not the primary one, but certainly a contributing factor in the country just sort of being um, less fiscally minded when it comes to um, you know our our policy making, right? We we haven't had really a, a full um, congressionally led kind of budget and appropriations process for for quite some time, um, and so I, I think that is what primarily what you know we would want this to do in addition to just avoiding the risk um, of the default. But um, so if Congress does adopt um, a budget resolution by April fifteenth. The um, legislation um, legislation would be sent to the president um, um, automatically um, that would suspend the debt limit um, through the fiscal year of that budget resolution. Um, if Congress does not adopt a budget um, by April 15th, um, the president would make a request to Congress uh, to um, suspend the debt limit through the end of the next fiscal year. 
Um, the president also must submit a debt reduction proposal that will receive a vote in both chambers um, and alongside um, other qualifying competing proposals. Um, and if Congress does not vote to disapprove um, the debt limits, the debt limit suspension, um, the, the in that case, the, the debt limit um, would still be suspended. So I, I think the, the point is trying to force um, either um, agreement on on a budget, which should actually be where we have these discussions about, um, you know, top line spending numbers and, um, you know, 10 year budgetary outlooks like that is the mechanism that Congress set up for doing this. It should not be an ad hoc. We're approaching a crisis. Let's have the you know top four leadership in Congress and the White House negotiate. Um, this is something that should be going through the the legislative process. And if um, you know Congress and the President get their shot at doing that and they they miss it, the country should be punished for it. Essentially, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I I am on the record continuously against things like automatic CRs because I think that gives too much power to the executive branch. But automatic debt limit increases seem to me to be a perfectly natural thing to do um, and perfectly reasonable when they're when they're sort of retrospectively looking at money Congress has already spent or taxes they've already cut to create the deficit that it, that would come under its concern. Uh, I had a different question about something you've been writing about recently, Michael, which is that, you know, there's this sense that potentially next week, if no deal comes together, you're going to all of a sudden see sort of like the moderate gangs form in the Senate or the moderate Republicans start to get sort of um, interested in maybe cutting a deal with the Democrats. And you've been writing a lot about uh, or thinking a lot about the discharge petition in the House. How serious do you think those various things are if we get down towards crunch time next week? One thing I've noticed is I feel like both sides have done a very good job of sort of tamping down their members from centrist sort of getting centrist curious, right? Like the Republicans seem totally in line right now. And the Democrats who are mad seem mad in the other direction. They want unilateral action from Biden, right? They don't want to sort of cut deals right now. But do you think that changes next Wednesday or Thursday? Do you think the discharge petition becomes a live issue once again? Well, look, I think if we've gotten that far and we still don't know when, um, you know, the the default is going to happen, it, it's probably too late for uh, the discharge petition to help us. So the discharge petition, you know, is an expedited procedure in the House that can sort of allow a majority uh, to essentially take, you know, agenda control of the House floor. Um, there's a lot of hurdles they have to get through that. And there is a significant amount of time, you know, that has to transpire before they're actually able to get to a vote. Um, and so I think the point you just made gets at, at one of the first hurdles, which is that um, you need 218 members to go along with whatever, um, you know, the discharge petition scheme is. Um, but at the end of the day, that is always going to be viewed as sort of a, a rebuke of the, the speaker and the majority party. So it's it's a pretty dicey uh, proposition for majority party members to attach themselves to. Um, yesterday, Democrats announced um, in, in the middle of a press conference, they got word that they got all 213 of their members to finally sign on. Um, that took them about a week uh, from when they all could have signed on. So some questions about what was taking Democrats so long to get in the line on that. But they all seem now to have, um, you know, I guess, seen the light for back of a letter term, uh, lack of a better term. That was the hard part. The 213 should have been easy. Um, now they have to find five Republicans who are willing to to join them in this. And so far, as you said, Republicans seem pretty united in wanting to rely on the process that is ongoing with, with the negotiation. They want to give the speaker room and his negotiators room. If, if this, you know, if we're out at May um, 30th or 31st or even June 1st and there's still no resolution, um, I, I, it's possible that people will be more interested in this, uh, but I think the uh, downside at that point is that the amount of time that has to go into it um, is, is going to push this further and further out. So once they get to 218 signatures, um, the the motion to discharge has to go um, on a, a discharge calendar for seven legislative days. Um, which to like, you know, the average citizen is like, you know, three weeks. Um, but, uh, you know, that's seven days where, um, you know, the House 
is in session. And as many of us know, you know, Congress generally meets maybe three days a week, maybe four in session. Uh, so it, it could easily take two weeks for that to happen. And especially if the leadership still does not want to get on board with this discharge process, they really could drag it out and prevent um, prevent it from happening for even longer. But even then, after the seven legislative days expire, uh, the speaker has two legislative days to bring the measure up for a vote. So that's nine legislative days, at least, where we're sort of, you know, hanging uh, in abeyance, waiting to see what happens. Um, and especially we don't know, you know, how the, the planned recess, the House is supposed to be out on recess next week for Memorial Day, how that's going to impact the calendar and the timing. You know, I, I think this is not a mechanism that is well designed for um, you know, an, an exigent circumstance where we're trying to get around the process. I think the best case scenario is if if we're really, really um, up to the cliff and there is a deal, um, it, it'll really require, you know, cooperation in the case of the Senate of basically all, you know, 100 members or at least, um, you know, to, to keep it moving as quickly as possible. Um, the House, they can they can deal with a, a few defectors, you know, being unhappy with expedited consideration, but um, they don't have a lot of room. Um, you know, again, it, it, it'll come down in the House to a majority. And that means, you know, the the Republicans, you know, um, can only lose like, five, you know, a handful of members on that or, you know, they they could easily be thrown off, I should say, by, you know, a handful of members of Democrats aren't aren't willing to help them out on the procedural end. Yeah, that is the ultimate. I mean, you know, the, the vote count at the end obviously is important to everyone uh, and how you build it. You need to get to 218 in the House, but how you're going to get that 218 for this particular deal um, sounds like it's going to be something like 100 and change Democrats and 120 Republicans, and then who knows how many come along, but with the wings both voting against it, that's the shape of how these deals tend to go. And so there'll be a lot of screaming on both sides, but it will be that centrist coalition that almost votes for it. The The thing I do wonder is if, if, if there's a deal in the works, do we really have to worry about any of these sort of actual deadlines or will the Senate simply pass a one week debt limit suspension or whatever, if we need extra time, if there's a deal to be had, I'm not too worried about the hours ticking down. Now, Rand Paul, Mike Lee aside, um, I feel like those kinds of things tend to come together. Three-day CRs, two-week CRs. We have this done, but we need more time type situations. Um, the, the thing about the discharge petition and why I feel like same thing in the Senate, these things can congeal, is that once you have the people who are getting nervous and they announce they're getting nervous, the actual procedures start to matter less. And the fact that they're defecting starts to matter more. Um, if 218 people stood up in the House and said, whoa, we got to extend the debt limit for a month. I'm really thinking about doing something different here. I think it probably puts enough political pressure on people to make things happen. But again, we don't know. Um, and also those five Republicans are nowhere to be found right now. So it's not really sort of a live issue. But I do wonder if next Wednesday, people become a lot more jittered, especially if the market starts moving in ways people don't like. I think we started to see the market move this week with sort of like the bond rating agencies and all those people starting, starting to talk. And that will freak members out. I, anyone who's around on the Hill in 2000. Eight, can remember watching the stock ticker as the tarp bill went down on the house floor and uh, it's the only day in my life i've seen united states senators run down hallways um people get freaked out quick yeah yeah I well think and you're, fitch you're has right. already put us on a on a you know negative outlook so the credit ratings agencies are, are starting to 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 wave at us um we have a little red flag at us in the face um, I, I do think that what you're highlighting is is kind of like the most important thing of this entire negotiation. They're going to need Democratic votes. And once they get Democratic votes, they're going to lose Republican votes. And once they lose Republican votes, they're going to have to remake the deal. And then they're going to need more Democratic votes. And then they're going to lose more Republican votes. So whatever, whatever that actually looks like is going to be very complicated. It's going to uh, you know, th this is a herding cats exercise, which is not uh, an exercise that's done with military precision under a deadline. Um, so, and we've already, I think we saw something leaked, the outlines of a, bi of a whatever bipartisan means these days deal um, leaked at around two o'clock today. It's it's Thursday for, for what it's worth, everybody. 
um, the 25th, uh, and uh, and that very predictably made some Republicans, House Republicans, cranky. Um, and interestingly, among other things that were cranky making uh, in that uh, deal was the idea that you would extend it to 2024 instead of next year. Um, you know, the, the our ability to keep doing this with this level of genuine risk this frequently is not, this is not like a game theory class I want to sit in on, frankly, as a country. I was interested in that. Uh, you know, it's there's, a, there's this funny situation where like Biden wants this to go exactly through 2024 to get it out past the election. And the Republicans either want it to go like just one year so we could do this again next spring or have a 10 year caps, right? Like they have this thing where like either really short or push this out as far as possible, where I think Biden main goal is to just get this out two years exactly. So it's past the election, but not tying down the non-defense discretionary caps uh, too far into the future, which is sort of a, a, a different kind of weird game theory exercise uh, in terms of the preferences of the parties. I did have one optimistic feeling today when I saw lots of little sweeteners starting to get mentioned as part of the deal. When you see like permitting reform starting to be discussed seriously, or other people trying to sneak in stuff from, from left field about the deal, it really feels like you're getting down to crunch time, or then people start ripping off crazy stuff like, oh, I'm not doing this without immigration. It sounds like sort of like we're getting down to the vote counting point about who's in and who's out here. I do think there's a fair amount of Republicans who who just want to be done with this in a way they can claim victory on, which I think they will be able to based on what they get, uh, who don't really care what the deal is, if it's in the range of sort of the possible deals we can see right now. Um, and I, the dog that's not barking right now is I haven't heard a single Freedom Caucus person say the words motion to vacate. They seem to want to kick and scream about this, but they haven't really talked seriously yet publicly about using this to sort of actually knock out McCarthy. And so I think he's going to survive. And I think he's going to survive pretty easily uh, as it comes down. I think a lot of Republicans are actually sort of genuinely impressed. Maybe it's because they had low expectations, but McCarthy seems to have done reasonably well here. Yeah, I, I, that may be a keeping their powder dry thing, but also like you've had House Democrats say, look, you know, we'll, we'll band together and help you remain speaker. And can you imagine more of a smackdown if you're on the House Freedom Caucus and you're like, I'm going to vacate this guy. I didn't get to remake the federal government. And then like Keem Jeffries is like, here you go, Kevin, I got a little present for you. I've got a whole bunch of like Democrats who are going to vote for you for speaker. Like that's, that's a, that's a smackdown. Yeah. Um, I, you know, we're in fantasy land in my head at this point. So maybe no, I mean, it, it kind of is. I, give it to know, an actual question for Michael. <laughs> And well, you know, I think it, it, it what it'll come down to then is whether uh, Jeffries and these other Democrats can keep their word if they have enough of them to actually, um, you know, bolster McCarthy as much as he he need to be. You know, this will be very different from the speaker vote. You know, the, the dynamic will be different in that, um, you know, I, I think then there was a, a much less clear um, you know, set of, um, you know, criticisms or, or motivations, whereas with this, they will have a, if, if this does become something that they rally around, which I, I agree with Matt, it's, it's interesting that they're fairly muted right now, but if they did rally around this, they'd have something really specific to point to rather than just sort of, you know, oh, we don't think, you know, he's going to be conservative enough. And so, um, you know, it might not be that there are five or 10 holdouts, you know, at that point there might be, um, you know, a, a lot more who are willing to, um, you know, to to go with that faction. And then the pressure will really be on on Jeffries. You know, there are already Democrats who are upset with the deal that's forming here. And, you know, why would they go along with their party's, you know, agreement to help the other party's leader that essentially crafted this thing that they don't like? So I think, um, you know, we we won't know until the smoke clears on the deal where where people are going to stand, but um, it it's interesting, yeah, that 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 is at this point at least not the leverage point that the Freedom Caucus members have decided to raise in the negotiations of like, well, you know, our way or the highway, um, yeah. and and look, I'm sure they're they are probably also aware that they've they've got another you know number of shots at this as as they go forward, right? I mean, even if they get an agreement on the caps, that doesn't tell us what the ultimate appropriations, you know, agreement will be come the fall. And so, um, you know, they might be able to, um, you know, 
get what they want more there uh, through that process. So um, I, I think they also are just um, seeing what you see, Matt, which is it, it seems very possible they're going to be able to claim a victory here. And they're probably happier to be able to claim a victory, even if it's not, you know, the whole victory that they wanted. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I think that's I certainly think the median Republican is going to feel that way for sure. Um, the Freedom Caucus might maintain this sort of like completely implausible position that the original sort of bill that passed the House was what should have finished with. Like, I, there's no Republican who genuinely thought like that wasn't a negotiating anchor, right? But like the Freedom Caucus might try to claim that simply because they're against sort of deal making as a principle. Um, but again, it's it's more like a cry and vote no sort of situation to me than it seems like a retribution action situation. They don't, I mean, I, I also think that to a large degree, they believe McCarthy is the best leader they're going to get or the most malleable one, or the one who's going to cave to them the most on things. So what would even be the point of replacing him? Is Steve Scalise going to give you more or something, right? Or Patrick Henry's going to give you more? I don't know. Um, so, you know, I mean, and, and the Democrats can come to the rescue of McCarthy, and I think they probably would simply on the principle that you don't change speakers mid-course or something like that, right? They would just all vote in a block or something. Like, we don't want to do this nonsense, right? Or they just, you know, vote to table the motion or whatever. Um, but I do think that the bigger threat to McCarthy is that if a small block of Republicans do decide to abandon him seriously, then they don't need the motion to vacate, right? They can just stop. They can start voting against rules and things like that. You need a functioning majority to run the House. And if it's not going to be your partisan majority, it's got to be a different durable majority. Like the Democrats might vote for you once or might vote to table a thing, but you need someone to vote for the rules if you want to have agenda control. Um, right. And so, you know, I... McCarthy is no matter how much he gets lauded by the by the Republicans, he has such a narrow majority and such an angry faction that's proven itself willing to go to the floor stuff now um, that he is never not going to be in a precarious situation with the speakership. He's never going to turn himself into like a beloved figure. Um, he's always going to be a whipping boy, uh, even more so than Boehner was, I think. Um, let's talk about something different. Yeah, uh, there's a lot going on in, in the legislative branch that you are you are tied into, uh, Michael, in terms of modernizing the House, in terms of getting more funding, greater capacity to the House. Uh, the ledge branch bill just came out. Why don't you give us an update on where you see the playing field there? I know you've worked relatively tirelessly on this for years. So tell us, tell us what the, the current events are there. Yeah. You know, so a little background, I'm, I'm sure some of your listeners have, have heard some of this, but uh, since about 2019 and, and even a little bit before that, there's been a pretty robust effort um, within Washington from both civil society groups, um, but also on Capitol Hill to, try to really turn the corner on what has been a consistent weakening of the legislative branch. Um, people put it at, at starting at different times. I, I think probably fairly, we could say sometime in the, the early mid nineties, Congress um, you know, really started inflicting a lot of wounds on itself, cutting its budget and um, sort of continual deferral to the executive branch um, or just from a, a lack of policy agreement getting saddled with um, executive orders and other executive actions um, to try to resolve some of our big policy challenges. So things that might stick out in people's minds is like executive orders on immigration, um, you know, President Biden's recent executive order on student loans. Um, I think those are two examples where, you know, whoever was president basically looked at the situation, decided Congress wasn't going to do anything and decided to act on their own. Um, I think a lot of people who study Congress, who, who care about Congress, those of us in the the very, very, you know, the tens of us uh, in the country who really like Congress and want it to be better, um, you know, really tried to um, educate Congress on the fact that it, it needed to make some changes um, if it was going to be a really well-functioning institution. And so about four years ago, um, the House stood up a select committee um, on the modernization of Congress. It looked at a whole bunch of different ways um, to try to make the institution function better. I think some really high level things that came out of that was that, um, you know, Congress really needed to work on sort of its personnel issues. Um, you know, can it recruit, train, uh, develop, uh, you know, the, the best, um, you know, staff? Do they have enough staff to actually, you know, get their work done? Are, are committees funded well enough? Um, are its support agencies like the Congressional Budget Office, the Government Accountability Office, um, Congressional Research Service? There it is. Um, you know, uh, yeah, a whole bunch of them. Are they, you know, well funded enough to help Congress do its job as as is their mission? Um, and some of it was really looking at 
cultural things of what needs to change in Congress. How do you um, foster the kinds of relationships that really are necessary for lawmaking? Um, I think the conversation we just had about the, the debt ceiling and potential default have a lot to do with just a, a real lack of trust um, in the institution. There are many fewer of those kinds of relationships that um, maybe at once people might have expected like, oh, you know, these are the two people who, you know, when, um, you know, the the debt hits the fan, um, you know, we know are going to be able to resolve this. It seems like there are less of those figures in Congress. Um, so how do you um, create opportunities for those relationships to really get built? Um, and, you know, some of it, um, you know, we made a run at some procedural things. So, um, I, I think I, I've been saying, I think one of the biggest transformations to come out of the last few years in this space was the fact that, um, you know, Congress restored um, and and reformed um, earmarks, uh, congressionally directed spending. Um, we could talk more about that in detail, but um, Congress did some other things like increase, you know, members office budgets so they can hire more staff and better paid staff. Um, and a really interesting thing that they did was create this um modernization account uh within the house that kind of gives leadership um and the the officers the administrative officers of the house some funding to resolve you know sort of long-standing administrative and operational dysfunctions so one of them it that probably you know most people outside of capitol hill don't care about is the fact that you know, house staff for some reason get paid every month instead of twice a month, like everyone else um, in in the government and in the legislative branch. So um, they needed money to actually change their accounting and payroll system to make that possible because they were operating on such an outdated uh, technology. I can interrupt there and say I, I remember the house. I mean, I guess it's still true, but the days of these staffers making peanuts and then getting your, you know, January check before Christmas. So you'd have it, they'd get a check on like December 20th and then you wouldn't get paid again until February 1st in the house. And uh, these are people getting paid, you know, $31,000 a year or whatever. And it was just, it was just brutal. And sort of those sort of simple upgrades are really heartening. I, I should say from firsthand experience at ledge branch, most members of Congress wish they could fund Congress better and would love to find ways to do it. But most of them are at least skeptical, if not many of them terrified of taking the votes to actually increase the funding. And so it's a it's a it's a very naughty problem where everyone sort of understands the problem. But sort of the the the, the strictures of democracy hurt you on this one because voters hate this stuff. Um, you know, a simple one that was passed recently was allowing members to make their duty station their home district so that when they come to Washington, they get a per diem so they can get food and uh, and, and rent a room and charge it to their to their official accounts where they're having to pay out of pocket. And voters go nuts about this stuff, right? It's the fodder of every sort of cable news of, you know show you can imagine. And uh, it's just what every federal employee gets, right? When they're away from home. And it's and and by God, you know, I was an intern in the 90s for Mike McNulty and he slept in his office. And it wasn't because he was some, you know, Tea Party crazy trying to make a stand about how much they hate Washington. He literally couldn't afford to have an apartment in Washington. And like, that's nuts uh, for our Congress. And I always try to tell people, if you want Congress to be filled with millionaires, keep up not paying them because the only people who want to, you know, financially take the job were people wealthy enough to sort of do it as a hobby. Um, and I hope that's not the Congress people want. And it's certainly not the one I want. And uh, finding ways to do this stuff and to either turn the public around, at least enough to make the members vote for this stuff, or finding clever ways to make it sort of better for the members without spending more money or without looking like they're spending money on themselves, I think is a hugely important thing right now. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I often try to tell people that, um, you know, you you get the government that you pay for. Um, and right now, we don't put a whole lot of money into Congress. And I think, um, you know, those that and Congress is you know, perennially low approval ratings are are related. The institution, um, you know, really struggles beyond the politics, which are already a challenge enough um, to do as as best of a job as it can. And so, um, you know, for instance, um, you know, executive branch, the private sector are all taking advantage of of technology, um, you know, that is that is new, that's fresh, um, helps them do their job better. Congress really struggles with that. You know, we're looking at things like artificial intelligence coming down the pipeline. Congress is going to get hit by artificial intelligence like, uh, you know, a Mack truck. 
uh, and and unless you know there's actually some investment in the institution, um, I, I think the outcomes the public is going to get from it are going to be worse. Um, but uh, you know, as you say, that's a it's a tough sell to the public. Yeah, I think this is an issue where, you know, it used to be very like inside the beltway and it's gone beyond that. Um, you know, we've started seeing like major articles and major uh, news outlets in like dribs and drabs in like 2015-ish, but it's like really gone kind of mainstream and, you know, the work of BPC and others, uh, as well as the Modernization Committee has like really kind of put this in front of people's faces. Um, it, you know, not truly... to mention like, you know, interesting like social media phenomena, like, you know, dear white staffers uh, saying, hey, let's talk about what these what these lifestyles of being a staffer is actually like. Yeah. And in a truly bipartisan way too. I mean, I think that the, there, there was always this sort of strand of the left that wanted to sort of beef up Congress because they were annoyed by sort of the lobbying influence on the Hill. And they saw it as mostly corporate lobbying, perhaps fairly or perhaps unfairly. Um, but the, the, there was a strand of the right, a good government right that caught on with this about starting in about 2010. And, and it was largely maybe not for the greatest reasons. It was a reaction to sort of Obama's um, administration and seeing the overreaches of sort of executive action under Obama, but a, a large number of conservative or libertarianish outlets downtown really sort of took up this cause and it became a bipartisan thing. And, uh, and I'm grateful for that because it really has made the push for this a lot better and a lot easier of a lift once the sort of intellectual and then policy space was filled with people from all corners of the political spectrum um, who, who were interested in doing this. And that's been a, that's been a great development in Washington in the last, in the last, 10 years is that this has finally come to the fore uh, with a lot of people in both parties from different ideological stripes believing in it. And that has greased the skids uh, to make things like the modernization committee happen and make their sort of recommendations palatable across the chamber. Yeah, well, I, and I even think... the way that the modernization committee works with each other is very different from kind of the, the working uh, MO of other committees. I, I was wondering if you could speak about that a little bit, Michael, especially given your, your experiences. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, this was a committee that, um, you know, it was formatted very differently than any other committee. Um, it was split even. Um, it was six Democrats, six Republicans. Um, they had some requirements that you had to have a certain number of freshmen on there. You had to have some members from House administration, really trying to get a, a, a um, the right cross section of people on the committee. But I think also, um, you know, sort of in its structure, um, you know, you you needed to have a certain amount of bipartisan support to get anything done. Um, you know, four years later, the committee basically passed everything unanimously. So it wasn't even really a question of whether you had enough bipartisan support for, um, you know, to meet the threshold that was set up there. But the culture of the committee was was very different um, from the get go. Um, you had a, a a Democratic chairman in, in Derek Kilmer, who's a representative from Washington, um, and his, um, you know, first ranking member, um, who uh, was Representative Tom Graves um, from Georgia, and and they really just, um, you know, decided from the get go that this was going to be a, a partnership, um, that this was not an exercise that was about, you know, scoring political points. Uh, they hired shared staff. They had very substantive hearings that were much more about learning than they were about sort of performing, um, you know, some kind of partisan, um, you know, theater of, you know, what's wrong with our, our government. Um, these were hearings that were very much about, you know, asking experts, you know, questions that were trying to get to the bottom of some really um, fundamental questions about our, our democracy and our government and how should it function and why is it so dysfunctional? How do we make it better? Um, and I think that culture continued and, and even, I think, um, really shockingly and, and much to their credit, they were able to maintain that even after um, January 6th, uh, when, when tensions got much more heated on Capitol Hill, um, they were able to uh, maintain that throughout two impeachment uh, trials, um, uh, some of which like the impeachment ha vote happened on one day. I remember when the committee was having one of their hearings on um, how to foster collaboration and bipartisanship, uh, you know, it's just because the world is ironic. Um, so, you know, the, this this was a, a special, um, you know, uh, probably hard to recreate 
culture within the committee, um, at least in our, our current um, situation, you know, it, it um, avoided many of the cultural issues that divide Congress now. It avoided many of the fiscal issues that divide Congress right now. Uh, but it, it really was a demonstration that members can work differently. They can work, um, you know, together. And I think the results, as you said, Matt, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll take the example, which I, I brought up about um, congressionally directed spending and earmarks. Um, you know, you, you had members really come around to the understanding that, you know, Congress gives away its power, you know, the more it, it delegates to the executive branch um, to make any number of decisions. Uh, and something like earmarks um, gives a little bit of that decision making power back to Congress. Uh, and, you know, uh, I think earlier this year, um, even Marjorie Taylor Greene and Ryan Zinke, who are very, you know, conservative, far right members, um, even within the Republican conference of the House, were saying, well, we need to be able to do this because this is um, important to maintaining Congress's Article One authority over the power of the purse, um, which, you know, is is a long way from the rhetoric of 2010 um, which was, you know, we're not going to do this because um, we think it's corrupt and it leads to overspending, um, all of which were arguments that that really were were pretty weak, but were unfortunately convincing. Yeah, yeah you have a wonderful tracker on your your website where people can can check out all of those different requests. Uh, you know, I think I've already like sent your stuff to different reporters. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's great. I love to hear that. Yeah, I mean, this this really is the the most transparency we've ever had in this process. The most accountability. Um, you know, it it used to be um, anyone who's looked into the history of this. I mean, it was almost impossible to find these things the way they were written into laws um, pre two thousand six. Um, you know, it got a little bit better after two thousand six. There was an effort to put some, you know, accountability and transparency in place, but um, it that really fell to the wayside of, um, you know, uh, I think Tea Party fervor uh, combined with sort of good government fervor, um, which, which, you know, really killed it around 2011. Um, and, and to Congress's credit, look, I think they fixed all those weaknesses. You know, you can go in, find out almost everything you want about what members are requesting, you know, what they're getting, um, there's going to be audits by the Government Accountability Office. Um, you know, I, I think if there's a concern that this is like happening in back rooms and and we're never going to know who got what, um, I don't I don't think that's the case. And and there's just been a really um, I think every fiscal year that they've had this, um, there has been um, an increase in Republican participation. Um, Democratic participation was really strong from the get-go. I think in the House, only one Democrat has not participated. Um, that's Katie Porter from California. Um, in the Senate, I think it's it's maintained at two senators on the Democratic side who have not participated. Um, that's uh, Maggie Hassan from New Hampshire and John Tester from Montana. Um, and and I, I think that really just speaks to the fact that most of Congress gets this. And I think the the narrative around this is is really coming um, back to where it should be. And and the longer that goes on, I think um, the more members are going to come around um, to a lot of these issues. It's interesting too because uh, I was at appropriations in in 2010, like FY 2010, which was like the last like that was the really bottom of the barrel year where it was absolutely true that the earmarks were overrunning the bills. Right, all anyone cared about was what the earmarks were, and they had the earmark database which sort of let everyone see them, but the members love the database. They can point their constituents, right? They're all the goodies they got. And so it, it's it's interesting to me because ultimately I think they came up with a sensible system of reforms that limits the number any members can get. It gets rid of sort of the, the, the for-profit companies getting them and things like that and, and forces them into sort of better projects that are community oriented. Um, and all those reforms were plausibly there in 2010. It was just a political culture at the time and the public opinion was never going to let them reform that system. They were going to have to kill it. Uh, in 11 under Boehner like they did. And, you know, like I, I was, to McConnell's credit, McConnell was always where I think Congress should have been on this, that this is just an infringement on sort of separation of powers to take this away from the ability of Congress to direct this stuff and instead let some, you know, GS-12 over in DOT be handing out these projects in every time. Not to disparage GS-12s and DOT, but I know, it's not obvious to me that they know 
typically what's better um, for, for the constituents than the members do. Um, well, and the other thing there, too, is that it's 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 not just the, the civil servants right on the executive branch side. We know right. that that presidents and, and political appointees will direct that money to places that are are um, potentially beneficial to them electorally. So, um, yeah, was, you know, I was, it, just, it, I was just yeah, talking to I was just talking. Yeah. Oh, God, I was just talking to someone. Last week, and we were talking about how many ribbon cuttings is Biden going to do on new highway projects in Pennsylvania and Georgia and Arizona next year. And like, I'm like, this is like not only like is this politics in action, right? You can see it, but this is like a great like piece of evidence for uh, earmarks, right? Because it's not like the executive branch won't be opening certain highways at certain times at a DOT uh, all through 2024, right where it happens to be the president needs them. Um, and you know, th- there's there's this idea that the executive branch because it has a different kind of politics, doesn't have sort of similar um, negative incentives that are ascribed to Congress sometimes, um, which I don't necessarily think are negative, but are sort of seen as corrupt, right? All that stuff can occur right in the Department of Transportation and does every single day. And, and you know, I, what this really comes down to also for us at, at BPC is we think this um, really aligns members of Congress' interests with their local communities at a time when politics is very nationalized. Right. And so we think this this helps to anchor them in, in reminding them about what their community's needs are. Um, it, it gets their staff um, thinking more about what's happening in you know, small towns and rural counties uh, and, and what are those you know, um, problems that the federal government can help solve that these places can't do on their own. So I think that um, people are really seeing that as, you know, uh, another benefit here of it, it actually is giving them something that they can focus on all of the constituents that they came to Washington to represent. And it gives them something to go home and say, you know, I, I fixed this problem for us. Yeah. Like Washington right now is bitter. Um, it's partisan and we have a hard time getting stuff done, but you know, here's the stuff that I was able to, to fix for us. And I, I think uh, at the end of the day, that's a net good for government overall when people are seeing government, you know, helping fix the the challenges in their communities. I have a funny yeah. earmark story. Oh, go ahead, Laura. Oh, uh, no, I, uh, I have research on this that like just really needs to find a home. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, you have an argument for, you know, electoral accountability, uh, for, you know, making politics more local again, uh, for, you know, getting the executive branch out of things that should be of greater congressional concern, but also like the you know, some of the loudest voices in the room that are problematic for congressional lawmaking are kind of in traditionally are actually kind of cash poor in terms of elections and like make them make them compete with folks who actually want to build bridges, you know, make them compete with folks who want to like deliver actual tangible things for their communities and who want to have those conversations, even having those conversations you know, with your district, with different uh, economic interests in your district, you know, with economic planners in your district, uh, with other people in your caucus, I think helps to really, you know, start uh, building these muscles of compromise and of expertise and information and different, you know, conversations that should be more regular, like building up these muscles that have really atrophied. And I think it's a positive a uh, really positive sign to see more Republicans uh, requesting earmarks. Um, they're they're going to have to vote for them this time. They didn't last time, right? Uh, yeah. Because they were in the minority. That by itself is just bananas uh, that you would, you know, historically that you would get an earmark, not vote for the bill and, and get to keep the earmark. Um, uh, previously, you got taken to the woodshed um, yeah. for good and- reason. I think that was a really strategically wise decision Democrats made um, back in, in 2019 when they first started talking about this. And in 2020, um, I think both Rosa DeLauro, who was the chairwoman of the Appropriations Committee, is now ranking member, um, and uh, Frank Pallone, when they were looking at doing um, transportation infrastructure earmarks, both said um, that they were not going to strip out um, earmarks of members who don't vote for the bill. And I think that, you know, they they understood the longer that the longer term interest of getting um, this practice going again, for Congress's benefit for constituents benefit was was more important than kind of um, old school, you know, punishing the people who, um, you know, kind of want to have it both ways. 
Yeah, it well, you can only punish people if they understand that they deserve to be punished. Right. <laughs> it doesn't feel like the the earmarks have come back as a tool of vote buy, of buying up the vote as much as they've come back as a tool of community projects because you're capped on how many you can get. It seems like based on the data I saw, most people who request them get most of what they want. Right? It doesn't it doesn't have that feel where you're sort of negotiating out earmarks in order to grab you know buy up the vote in the house. Um, now, buying up the vote can be good if you can get a big crew for a bill that's bipartisan. I like that. Um, but the, the game of leadership using them as, as the key tool of vote buying, that it's not coming back, but earmarks are, I'm okay with that. I was going to tell a funny earmark story. The ledge bill, which is the legislative branch bill, which is the bill I did at House Appropriations, never had earmarks in it. And it wasn't because we didn't allow them, although we didn't like them. And it wasn't because people didn't want them. It was like, no one could figure out how to put a uh, put an earmark in a ledge branch bill, right? Every Everything it funds is you know, less than 100 yards from the Capitol. Um, and then in 2009, someone figured out how to do it. And it was uh, Senator Ben Nelson, who was the subcommittee chair in the Senate of Ledge. And he got a project in there for a Library of Congress partnership program with a local library in Nebraska. And we looked at that in the Senate bill because it was in the Senate bill. It had, you know, it didn't go in the House bill. And we said, oh my God, this is going to explode if we don't nip this in the bud. And, uh, and obviously, like, we're not going to take the subcommittee chair's earmark out of the bill, but we made it absolutely crystal clear in the following year's bill that we are not accepting earmark requests um, for local library programs. And luckily, they banned earmarks. And so we never had to deal with it. But that last year before the bans, we finally figured out doing a ledge bill. And we were like, oh, boy, this is, this is going to change the complete politics of our subcommittee because every library in the country is going to be looking for these things. Um, so we've been going over an hour. And as much as I could do another hour here, I think our listenership is declining on an exponential scale at this point. So we get our parting shots. Uh, Michael, I don't know if you're a regular listener of podcast, but we give everyone a chance to go around the room and talk about one thing for a minute. If they have something special in their mind, I will go first to get you a chance to thank my congressman, who is Jerry Connolly here in Virginia 11. His office was attacked by a man wearing a, wielding a baseball bat um, this week. And that is a horrific thing to happen to a uh, member's district office. Um, I can, I can say when the Giffords shooting happened, you know, coming up on a decade ago now, I guess, um, that stunned me, uh, that someone attacked the members district office baseball bat sadly did not stun me this week. And, um, that is a commentary on a lot in our politics, but, um, at, at, at the core level, you know, you, you, I once thought of the legislature at a place that was kind of immune from that stuff because you can't really disrupt the legislature, right? It's the, the, the beauty of it. It's sort of a distributed decision-making, right? It's not like assassinations in executive politics, um, or scary things like that. Uh, but the the level of violence surrounding the legislative process now has increased. Um, I would feel terrible if there's members of Congress who don't feel safe in their district offices, or if there's people thinking about running for Congress who don't because they're scared of, of personal violence. But uh, I hope we find a way to sort of nip this or get members more security. I know people are very hesitant to give the Capitol Police uh, jurisdiction out in the states. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, but I hope uh, they do another increase in the MRA for members that have more security put on their offices. Anyone else ready to go? Um, <laughs> I didn't know we were doing like a make me oh, smile or make me frown or like make me want to give somebody a hug section uh, to the end of this uh, this uh, this particular podcast. Uh, Jerry Connolly actually did speak to my. Uh, I, I, I taught a Congress class at UVA when I was a, as an adjunct professor when I was in grad school there, and he came and he, and he spoke to the class because his daughter uh, was in the class. Um, so um, also hugs to the, to the wider Connolly family <laughs> from me here, um, and top-notch student, um, uh, she, she was, um, she still is. Uh, yeah, I mean, my, 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 uh, brain is focused on all the debt ceiling stuff, um, which is just kind of kind of where I am. Um, and watching to see how people react uh, to this this supposed leak. Um, and I I you know I'm hoping that uh, folks do this in a in a productive way. I don't I don't have a a larger larger story for you, but that's where yeah, I. Parting shot, Michael. Yeah, I think mine actually has to do with, um, you know, we've talked about legislative and executive branch politics. And I, I think what we're actually really much more closely brewing toward is a legislative judicial branch uh, clash. And, and I think for a number of reasons, um, you know, 
the the big one being that there are currently a lot of stories swirling around about potential you know ethical uh lapses by um you know uh members of the supreme court supreme court does not currently have a, an established or statutory ethics um <clears throat> code of any kind um they have really kind of resisted doing that um and then we had um the Senate Judiciary Committee invite the Chief Justice to come speak before it um, on that topic, um, and the Chief Justice uh, declined to attend. Uh, I think a lot of people saw that, you know, as as Chief Justice Roberts really um, kind of wanted to, to flex the independence and the 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 um, you know sense that the court, um, you know, is of course a separate branch of government, but I think trying to signal that, you know, when it comes to this stuff, uh, you know, maybe the court doesn't answer to you all. So I, I don't actually have to come up here before you. Um, I, I think that is kind of topped off um, with, um, you know, there's an investigation right now involving someone um, who um, seems to have provided gifts and other, um, you know, potential financial support. I think we're still figuring this out, but this is sort of this issue with, you um, Harlan Crow and Justice Thomas. Um, Justice Thomas's um, lawyer, or sorry, Harlan Crow's lawyers have basically written to Congress who've been asking questions about this um, and said, um, actually, Congress doesn't have the power to investigate anything really dealing with the court. You know, impeachment is your only option uh, against chief justices. We don't have to um, answer your questions. Um, I, I think that's unsettled. And I, I think, um, you know, there's there's a potential if if there is um, uh, a Democratic president elected uh, in a, a year and if there are Democratic majorities in the House and Senate that, that Democrats will want to act on that. I think they're fairly um, upset. Republicans are basically saying this is a Democratic witch hunt trying to um, trying to get rid of Supreme Court justices, delegitimize the court. Um, I think that is also sort of wrapped up or will be wrapped up in some recent Supreme Court cases that really challenged Congress's um, authority or said basically that Congress can't delegate too much power to the executive branch. Um, I, I think those are all much more of a recipe for some um, Supreme Court Congress clashes um, if if um, the right the right matches get struck, I guess. All righty. Well, thank you so much for being here, Michael. This is awesome. And uh, everybody, we'll see you next time on Congress Two Beers In. <laughs>